Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we're health journalists who spend our lives asking tough questions to experts who really know their stuff so you don't have to. This week we're talking about the culture of defensive medicine. Do you know what that is, Barney? Well, please explain in a succinct way. (laughs) I'll try my best. So it's when doctors will order for unnecessary or inappropriate tests, diagnostic tests usually, because they are afraid of missing something and the patient then going ahead and suing them for that. Okay. And why would a doctor do such a thing? In order to avoid litigation, there's been this increase in I'd say compensation culture in the last sort of 10 years or so and a couple of very high profile cases in which doctors have not only been struck off but also sent to prison for waiting too long to do an operation or for missing something that was underlying and not ordering the appropriate tests. So now doctors are, well, some say that doctors are ordering lots and lots of different tests, a complete barrage of tests so that you've covered all bases and you can be sure you're not missing anything. But why isn't that a good thing? You know, why wouldn't it be a good thing not to miss things? Well, because not all tests are risk-free. Ah, I see. Well, look, before we continue, as ever, we'd like to know what you think about this. Uh, If you have any questions arising from this podcast, please do tweet us using the hashtag Medical Minefield or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk. Now, I looked it up. Defensive medicine is apparently defined as a doctor's deviation from standard practice to reduce complaints or criticism. So as you say, it's performing tests or procedures not because a patient needs it but because they're worried if they don't do it and they miss something they're gonna get sued the nhs even before the covid pandemic i don't know what the latest figures are but the nhs was facing around 8.3 billion pounds in negligence claims and 4.3 billion of that was in legal bills alone. So lawyers are obviously uh, Uh, laughing their way to the bank. But, you know, compensation culture, as you say, is bleeding the NHS dry. I have heard, and some doctors have told me that um, in hospital magazines now, you get a lot of, um, in the private hospitals, of course, you get a lot of adverts that are placed by the law firms that are trying to recruit their Mm. latest clients. But So one can understand why you might practice this defensive medicine this this medicine not for the best interests of the patient's health but to try and avoid or defend against some kind of accusation or wrongdoing i get it and also i suppose patients must quite like it you know i mean on the flip side you know you want to feel like you're you know your doctor's trying everything possible and looking at every avenue and I guess a certain amount of this must come from patients demanding. Well I think that's been the kind of second big change certainly in the last couple of decades. Patients are a lot more um, informed now, they want to know things about their health, they already have read up on many different things that they think their diagnosis could Mm. be which never used to happen really before the internet and social media. Well, as you say, even a test can have a downside. So you might think just a blood test or what's the harm or a scan, what's the harm? But some tests are quite invasive and they carry with them risks of their own. While rare, things do go wrong. And and you've got someone on the line who experienced some quite severe downsides from having quite common tests. Yeah, a really shocking story. Joining us now is Margaret Simpson, 
In 2018, Margaret underwent um, what she described as an unnecessary procedure. It was a colonoscopy. And had she asked for that? She had not. The doctor had ordered it. So her GP had had sent a referral to the hospital. Um, She was experiencing some um, unsettling bowel problems, had seen a change in her bowel habits, and the the GP had ordered a colonoscopy. Unfortunately, it ended up perforating her bowel, and she subsequently had to spend three weeks in intensive care, and she still suffers complications as a result of this. Yikes. We've got Margaret on the line now. Margaret, were your symptoms severe enough to warrant that colonoscopy? Well, yes, I was running to the toilet quite a lot and having diarrhoea on lots of different occasions. And that was why I was sent for the colonoscopy to find out, you know, if there was anything wrong. Were you sent for any tests beforehand? I know that's the standard procedure. Usually you'd have a blood test and a stool sample and that kind of thing. No, I don't remember having that, no. And then can you just take us through what happened during the procedure itself? Yes, well, when I was taken through to the room where the procedure was getting done, they started and I was watching on the television myself and it wasn't long on the bed until they stopped and took me through to another room and then I wasn't just known, I didn't really know what was going on and these doctors apologised to me and said we're really sorry but they had um, perforated my colon. So that was what had happened. And then after that, were you rushed to the emergency room? What what happened? Well, they took me up to the ward after that. I was taken up to a ward and I was waiting on a CT scan, which I waited for quite a while. I was beginning to get into a lot of pain by that time. I was taken down for a CT scan. Then I was taken back to the ward and later that night they did an emergency operation. Gosh. And how about now? That was a few years ago. What's happened since? Well, I got I got it reversed, the stoma reversed this last August there. Um so that's like three So you years had to since. did I hear that? So you had to wear a stoma you had to have a stoma bag. Oh yes, right? I got a stoma bag after the Gosh. operation, which I had for two years. And in between time I used to keep phoning the hospital. Well, we waited three, four months. The the surgeon said I would get a reversal about six months later and he saw me back and You know, he said, yes, everything will be fine to get it reversed. And then we waited two years and we used to phone the hospital every month to ask, you know, would I be on the list this time? And they said, oh, sorry, you're not on the list this time. And in the end, I went to my local MP, Alex Cole Hamilton, who was extremely helpful. And he was the one that got in touch with the government, the council here. And he took it to the government to have a discussion about it. And then it was eventually, last August, I got the reversal done. Gosh. And then after the reversal, has it been kind of plain sailing since then? No, 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 it hasn't. Um, I've had lots of problems. I can't go out first thing in the morning. I go to the toilet quite a lot. I can sit for half an hour, go back to the toilet again. One or two days, sometimes nothing happens. Um, There's no no routine at all. And it really has upset my life, really. God. So so thinking about that colonoscopy that you had then, Margaret, do you yeah. do you regret having it? Do you think it was unnecessary looking back now? Well, they were only trying to find out. I mean, I was, whatever was happening to me all the time, having diarrhoea and going to the toilet all the time, we just thought it was the best thing to see if there was something wrong. You never expected the, the colon to be perforated, you know? Mm-hmm. But I bet you, you regret being in that, that operating chair. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do now. 
Gosh. Well, Margaret, listen, thank you so much for finding some time to tell us what's happened to you and, and I wish you all the best. All right. Thank you very much. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, tests aren't harmless. It's not just medical surgical procedures that, that can cause damage. Just having a colonoscopy, which, you know, how many thousands of them are carried out a week? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting that the standard procedure, as far as I understand it, is to have a couple of tests that are non-invasive before you then go ahead with the colonoscopy. But it seems like in this case that wasn't done. She just was given the colonoscopy. But it's a difficult issue because the reverse is also true, isn't it? I mean, it's something we've reported on, that doctors are also, and this is a form of defensive medicine, reluctant to perform a high-risk procedure, even when it's indicated. Mm. Um, So, you know, someone complaining of all the symptoms of endometriosis, uh, which is a a pain condition that's linked to, to the menstrual cycle, they often aren't given the biopsy procedures that are necessary to diagnose it because there is a risk attached to that and doctors are reluctant to take the risk. I think with endometriosis it's quite an interesting one because some doctors will say that even the diagnostic procedure for the vast majority of sufferers isn't necessary or may not be necessary because actually it's not going to change the outcome and there is a lot of evidence to suggest that once you go in there and you start operating it increases the risk of the likelihood of you having further surgeries because it creates scar tissue and all the rest of it that actually worsens the problem so that's another kind of complicated example well it's it's not just tests and it's it, you know it's a huge problem that's concerning doctors across the world really so to get a, a broader picture next on the line we have dr jenny vaughan who's chair of the doctors association dr vaughan thanks for finding some time to talk to us we're talking about defensive medicine the culture of doctors performing tests or even procedures that perhaps might not be in the best interests of the patients or an evidence-based decision and yet they do so because they're worried about getting sued. How big a problem is this? Well it's massive. I mean there is no part of the NHS or indeed any example of a global healthcare system you care to mention that the long tentacles of defensive medicine doesn't reach. We have some US figures just because it's just slightly more easier to measure that because of the way their health system runs. And in 2010, so it'll be more than that now, the cost of defensive medicine was estimated at a mind-boggling $45 billion. So this is tests and procedures ordered just in case rather than because they were really needed. And so we could be looking at something like that with the... I mean, you know, even if it was a fraction of that, that would be quite significant for the NHS. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the point that it destabilises the provision of affordable health care for developed nations it really does we all hear about cases in which you know uh, someone's gone back and back to their doctor and and something's been missed and there's been a tragic outcome surely by you know being a bit overzealous in terms of testing you're gonna you know make sure that kind of belt and braces approach would avoid you know at least everyone's done everything they can isn't that right well, you say that, and, and of course, nobody is going to deny that every year, you know, there are, particularly during COVID, um, there are cases where, you know, we've been working in much more difficult circumstances. A lot of it's had to be, the care has been, had to be, uh, by default, has had to be delivered over the telephone. And things, you know, absolutely, there are things that should not have been missed. But I would challenge the contention that that's okay. It's not okay. And I'll give you an example. We have all heard about these horror stories 
of patients coming in and then they die of sepsis. Sepsis itself, it's rare, it happens, but it, you know, it, it is something that you have to look out for as a doctor. Infection is much more common. And what's happening now is because people are so worried about sepsis, and that's right in the sense that we should worry about sepsis, lots of times people are admitted overnight in hospital and they're having unnecessary investigations. They might have a lumbar puncture where a needle is put into their spine. That is not a painless procedure, which is not a procedure without risk, but more of those are being done. They're having bloods. They're having to stay in overnight just because the doctors and the patients are worried about sepsis. And even doctors themselves say, well, I just know this is a simple infection. I know I would treat myself like this, but because I'm worried about sepsis, I'm going to just admit this patient and, and bring them in, and then we're going to do this. But how many more cases of sepsis have been avoided by being more acutely aware of it and well, testing more people? Obviously, yeah, absolutely. You want to reduce the deaths due to sepsis. But the answer, we hope in future, is not going to be that people practice defensive medicine and we end up doing more investigations and admitting people. The answer has to be that we try and look for more intelligent ways of diagnosing sepsis and giving doctors markers that will help them to try and identify the patients who are at risk of sepsis. And so it's those are the ones it's trying to identify when they come to an A&E, the ones that are really at risk of sepsis and helping them by giving them more information. And that's the answer. The answer is not to miss questions of sepsis because we don't want to do that. Dr Vaughan, can I, can I ask you something? Um, what does a doctor do, though, if a patient says, I want you to do this test, this test and this test, I'm convinced I have this condition and I want it ruled out? What does a doctor do in that situation? You have to listen to patient and you have to decide what sort of thing might be wrong with the patient, how unwell they might be, and you have to decide whether that's appropriate in your professional judgment. Because when I'm dealing with my patients, I'm listening to them, I'm examining them, and I'm thinking about what diagnosis best explains their symptoms. I am also thinking about what I don't want to miss. And that's where doctors end up thinking about practicing defensively. They think about what's wrong with the patient and then what they don't want to miss. And then when I, if I decide I know what's wrong with the patient and what they're asking for is not appropriate, what I don't say to the patient is it's not appropriate for you to ask that. I'm not doing that. I absolutely, that's not the way to deal with it. The way to deal with it is listen to the patient. Try and understand why they want that because most patients I find are very sensible and they, I'm a patient myself, I've got cancer. And I, I have to deal with this myself. So I totally understand this. They want to be reassured. They've often got a history of they may know someone who knows someone who had a terrible complication. And that's why they're anxious. There is often a degree of anxiety underlying all of this. And because I'm a patient and because I'm also a doctor, I understand that. And so that's why I spend much more time with my patients and try and understand that. Now, that's often time we don't have, and that's why many people are feeling burnt out and time poor at the moment, but it's actually a better way to spend your time than just ordering investigations and not thinking, okay? So it's all about listening to the patient. Dr Vaughan, um, thank you so much for finding some time to talk to us today. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. 
All this discussion got me thinking about the downsides of knowing too much, that, you know, it isn't always better to be safe than sorry. Another risk of having an unnecessary test is finding something that you weren't expecting to find, an incidental finding. So it happened to me, I was reviewing a health spa in Baden-Baden. As you do. As you do. And as part of that, I had one of these, you know, middle-aged people's body MOT, (laughs) whatever it is, and they scan everything and they make you run on a treadmill and it was all a, uh, you know... I thought it was horrific. I thought it was all, you know, good, harmless fun because I, you know, I'm fit and healthy and had no concerns. So I just thought, you know, I'll do that and then I'll write up the review. But then while having an ultrasound of my neck because he goes over the, you know, he went over me with the ultrasound, blah, 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 over my whole, you know, all all my bits. All the nooks and crannies, yeah. And... In my neck, he he flagged up. He found some, I think they were like ulcers or nodules or something on my thyroid gland, which is a gland in the neck. It's responsible for your metabolism. Mm. And I had no idea about any of it. And he said, oh, you need to go and have a, a consultation with a with an endocrinologist now. So, you know, obviously hazard of the job, I, I do actually know a few and I booked in and then I had to have another ultrasound scan and that endocrinologist said yes that that I did have ulcers on my thyroid and it was common to have these but one of them was slightly larger and so it would be wise for me to have it monitored just in case these things can become precancerous or turn into other kinds of lesions or something can happen and you know it can affect your health so now I know that's there and if I was the type of person that you know that things like that would play on my mind I mean I've you know this was years ago and I never went back I did a bit of research and it is a variation of normal. Mm. But there is such there a thing is a as risk. too much information. I had a similar yeah. situation in that my brother tested uh, for high cholesterol and actually unfortunately has quite high cholesterol, which is probably related to lifestyle factors. But I uh, was very concerned because I knew that my um, uncle has high cholesterol and that my mum has had it in the past so I thought it might it might be a familial problem and his doctor interestingly he lives in America said your whole family should get tested if you have siblings get them Mm. tested so I thought okay well I'll go and get tested and I did and my cholesterol came back it was normal but the overall number was relatively it was it was in the high range of normal so me being slightly health anxious thought oh my god I've, I've got high cholesterol this is terrible but actually the balance of cholesterol was normal so these things could cause more worry than they can Basically, reassure yeah. mm. really. and, and if I hadn't have had that information I would have just been going about my daily life and I'm you know young and healthy and fine and yeah it's completely unnecessary for me to know that I do keep coming back to the idea that people I can think of a few people who would say well I'd rather know than not know about things you know better safe than sorry so, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure without doctors really leading and explaining, you know, you shouldn't have this test for X reason or, you know, there is no evidence that you need this examination, this procedure, this whatever, you know, but I, I imagine that would go down like a cold bucket sick in certain situations, uh, you know, stent operations, for instance, you know, so when they put a stent in the heart, mm. when you've got a blocked heart artery, people now know, the evidence now shows that in fact, if you haven't already had a heart attack, they do very little to 
prevent any kinds of problems. And in fact, they can make you more at risk from having a heart attack. But the thing is, you get a heart scan, it shows mm. blocked heart arteries, you've got a bit of angina, your doctor panics, the patient panics, and you all feel much better because you put a bit of metal in the in the artery to hold it open, not that it's going to you know, really do any good, according to a lot of the evidence. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you resolve that situation. Really. Yeah, I, well... Because everyone I, wants it to go on. Patients like it, doctors like it. And there could have been a situation that in which Margaret, poor Margaret, had this horrible diarrhoea problem and it was a, perhaps a tumour or a sinister-looking growth or something and it was missed, which we hear all too often. Mm. Um, so perhaps the colonoscopy... On balance, it could have been a different situation. It could have been absolutely necessary. Ultimately, it's about combating the rise of this compensation culture, really, that a whole commercial industry has sprung up to exploit the idea that if things go wrong with your health, it could be the fault of your doctor. And, you know, what do you do about that? Legislate against ambulance chasing legal firms? I don't know. Can't see that happening. The solution is technology, surely. Oh, in what way? Curveball. Well, new age scans and all sorts of advanced technology that mean that patients don't have to go through invasive biopsies or, you know, horrible colonoscopies. There's this very clever scan that can do all of this stuff and you needn't even go into the hospital. Or AI. Yep, AI. Which is better Basically at determining... Thing. Well, you know, the idea that actually if you have a computer programme that can, you know, assess patient notes in the first instance they'll be much better, a bit like driverless cars, they'll be much better at navigating whether or not a patient needs intervention or not. Uh, They'll be able to sort of hand on heart say, uh, you know, or hand on robotic heart say whether or not a patient needs that scan or that test or whatever. So, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, leave it to the computer brain. I can't see that going down very well with patients. Oh, we'll all love it. We've all downloaded our brains onto our iPhones anyway, so... Or the cloud. Where is the cloud? I don't know. If anyone knows, please tweet us. (laughs) Well, that's all we've got time for. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.